As I said, we're looking at the next part of the Apostles' Creed, which is, He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, He shall come to judge the living and the dead. Well, it's clear that we, as humans, have a fascination with fame and famous people. And if people went away for you to click on a website or to read a magazine, one sure way of doing that is, what is this star doing now? Maybe a child star, somebody used to watch on TV when they were very small. What do they look like now? What are they up to? And then you find out this child star who you looked up to is now, you know, they've started their own business and they could be popping around your house to do the plumbing or something. And you think, wow, look what, they, what they're doing now. They used to do that and now they're doing something very different. What are they doing now? People love to find out what the stars are doing. Well, even more glorious than that, this morning we're going to think about this. What is Jesus doing right now? What is he up to? In the Apostles' Creed, we've looked, haven't we, at who God is, and then we've looked at his Son, the Lord Jesus, God the Father's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we've seen who he is, something of the fact that he is the only Son, he is our Lord. But as we think of the next things we've looked at, they're all in the past, aren't they? We've looked at his birth. We've looked at his death. We've looked at his resurrection. But here we shift in this next statement. We're told he is what he is doing right now. He is seated at the right hand. So this morning we're going to look at what it means that Jesus has ascended. We're going to look at what he's doing now. And we're going to see what he will do in the future when he returns. Now when we come to the first part of thinking this morning, we're thinking about Jesus' ascension. We don't really think about his ascension much, do we? It can often be the forgotten part of this. We think about the birth of Jesus. We've, we celebrate something called Christmas every year. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, it gets quite popular, doesn't it? And few people get excited about it. And we remember the birth of Jesus. We remember the death of Jesus on the Easter weekend. Good Friday, his death. And on Easter Sunday, his resurrection. Big holidays that we celebrate and we stop and they're in our minds. But when it comes to his ascension, we kind of forget about it. Or we, we don't give it as much attention as the other aspects of Jesus' life, do we? Now, why is that, do you think? Why is it that we often forget or neglect the ascension of Jesus? Well, one thing could be that we find it a bit strange. Because here we read, and we have read in Acts 1, here is Jesus, and he's taken into this cloud. And sometimes we can maybe have this idea of Jesus, maybe, maybe we had um, some pictures from Sunday school or in the Bible of Jesus kind of being carried off in a cloud, a kind of a bit like Mary Poppins, and it kind of seems a bit weird and strange, and we don't want to think about it much because, you know, the, the death of Jesus, his birth, his resurrection, we can kind of get our heads around those, but his ascension can just seem so strange, a bit far-fetched, a bit bizarre. And so maybe sometimes we don't want to talk about it, maybe even a bit embarrassed about it. But the ascension of Jesus is wonderful, glorious news. The ascension of Jesus, when we grasp it, is so, it fills us full of hope and joy because of what it means. And I pray this morning we'll, uh, we'll see that as we think on the ascension of Jesus. Now, before we think of what difference the ascension makes and his return makes in our life, what is it? Um, what is the ascension? Well, look at those verses with me from chapters, uh, Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 11. Did you see what we read there? 
Uh, the disciples asked, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed in his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And in verse 9 it says, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now what is going on there? Well, 42 days before this moment, Jesus has been killed and he, had been, he was crucified. And so the disciples had lost all hope. Remember, we looked at that last week. They were in that room on their own thinking, well, we're next. We've had it. This man who we thought was the Messiah clearly isn't because he's dead. But then he rose and Jesus appears to them. He shows them he has a real body. He eats with them. So the fish that they see on the plate, he eats and it is no longer on the plate. He lets them touch him and they can physically see he is there. And here we're told he spends 40 days with the disciples. 40 days in this kind of training program, getting them ready to what they're going to experience. 40 days teaching them and showing them who he is and how it all makes sense. But now the time has come for him to go back to his father. And so what happens? He's lifted up and a cloud takes him out of their sight. Now, what is going on? Well, when we hear about a cloud in the Bible, that is hugely significant. Because in the Old Testament, if you read through it, it is really important when we see the cloud. Sometimes we can think of the cloud a bit like here, a bit like a magic carpet, you know, and Jesus is on top and he's floating away. But that's not the image we get here. The cloud covers him and takes him away. So we see um, in the Old Testament, the, the cloud is God's presence. Remember Mount Sinai, that's where Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments. What happened on that mountain? Well, the cloud covered it. And people, the people were nervous about being near that mountain. Do you remember they said, Moses, we want you to go up on our behalf. We, we don't want to go. We can't even, you know, we don't want to touch. We don't want to go near. And then Moses brings down um, the law. And on, in the law, we see the, the plans for the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, we see this tent that God designed. And he's, in this tent, he was going to show uh, everybody what heaven's like. It's going to be heaven on earth, an earthly model of heaven. And what was the tabernacle? Well, you couldn't just enter as you wanted to. You went on God's terms. And one of the things that was burning in the tabernacle is incense. Why? Well, as a reminder, it's like a cloud. It would have been like a cloud in there. The presence of God. So as Jesus ascends into heaven, he is entering the presence of the Father. And as Hebrews 4 puts it, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Jesus ascends into heaven. He is entering into the reality of the presence of the Father, and he goes there as our great high priest, which we'll think about in a moment. But what happens next? Here we see, don't we, the cloud takes Jesus out of sight. But what, what's next? Well, wonderfully, in Daniel 7, before this happened, Daniel saw what was going to happen. Listen to this. This is the ascension from heaven's perspective. So this is the behind the scenes on what happened next. And it says this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus is returning to his father. He is ascending, but he's not just simply going back to heaven. This is his coronation. This is the moment where he is presented before the father as the one who is the risen savior. His work is done it is complete. Now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is ruling. He is reigning. He is the King. As the creed says, isn't it? Seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. That means he is ruling and he is reigning right now. So Jesus returns to heaven. He is the King. He is our great high priest. And remember, he still remains a man. He is fully God, fully man. Now that is what, the ascent, what was going on in the ascension. Glorious things, but what does that really mean for us? What difference does that make in our lives? Here's four things that it means for us today. The first is this. The fact that the ascension happens means that Jesus rules for us. The ascension, as I said, is the coronation of Jesus Christ. There he is, presented before the Father. He is enthroned. He rules. He reigns. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. That is the place of honour, the place of power, a place of glory. Remember what we looked at a few weeks ago when Jesus was being mocked and abused. Remember how horrible it seemed that they were just taking, uh, make, making fun of him, calling him names, taking his clothes off him and mocking him? He's no longer in a place of mockery but he's in a place of honour. He is in a place of glory. He is now the King of Kings. And this is a huge help to us today. Listen to how Ephesians 1 puts it. He raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What is Jesus doing now? He is now on the throne of the universe. He's the king. He's the boss. That is what he is doing now. And he rules the universe. Why? Well, Ephesians 1 tells us he's head over all things for the church, for his people's sake. He is ruling and he is reigning for his people. Now, I wonder which verse you turn to most in your life. What verse do you maybe tell other people or quote to yourself or turn to? It could be many different ones. But I'm sure if we were to take a poll today of your top five verses that you kind of quote or know or use, this would come in there. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. When we're in a cloud of kind of darkness and confusion, when tough things happen in our lives, it, coming to that verse kind of gives us that hope, doesn't it? It's not, this hasn't taken God by surprise. He is working all things out for, uh, for our good and for his glory. But you know, Romans 8, 28, which is what that verse is, is only and can only be true if Jesus ascended, if he is seated on the throne because otherwise he's not ruling otherwise he's not reigning but because he is reigning that verse is true and we can find deep comfort there jesus is the lord of the universe it means the universe isn't spinning out of control 
It means we don't have to be terrified because we can trust in him. Remember what Jesus told the disciples in Matthew's account of his ascension. He doesn't really mention the ascension, but he mentions the commission. He says this, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. All authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. We can go and we can share in Jesus' name because he has ascended. Do you need to hear that today, that Jesus rules for us? We can, take, we can breathe that in, that Jesus is on the throne, that Jesus is ruling and reigning. Nothing takes him by surprise. He is working all things together for his glory and our good, and we can trust him. He rules for us. That's the first thing the ascension means. The second thing it means is this. He prays for us. Jesus ascends to heaven and he is now in the presence of the Father. And again, to grasp what that means, the Old Testament helps us. The, the temple is God's picture on earth to help us to see what's going on in heaven. And remember, uh, in the temple, we have different sections, uh, one section being the Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant is. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, we have the mercy seat, which is the throne where the Lord is seated. And there, in front of the presence of God, we have the high priest who could enter God's presence on that one day of the year. And he was representing the people, bringing their needs before God. Well, Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He has the ear of the Father. And Hebrews 7 tells us that what he's doing, he lives to make intercession for us. He lives to pray and bring our needs before God. One aspect of the high priest's work was to pray for uh, the people and to bring their needs and their concerns before God. And so that means that Jesus <laughs> prays for you. He brings your needs and your burdens and your cares before the Father in heaven. He knows you by name. He knows all of your struggles. And he prays for you. Even when others might forget, Jesus never does. He is praying for you. Isn't that an amazing thought? That Jesus prays for you by name. Not only does he pray for us, but when we think of who he is, this uh, Jesus seated in heaven, remember he's a man in heaven, physically. You know, he, he um, became human, and that didn't change. He is in heaven, he is fully man, which means he can sympathize with us, because he's been where we are. He knows what it's like to go through what we go through. As Hebrews 4 puts it, we have, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, again, the ascension means this is possible, let us hold fast our confession. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sins. As you read the Gospels, what do we see about Jesus? He gets hungry. He gets tired. He is tempted. He goes through times of sorrow and loneliness. He faces um, grief and death. He was fully human. He wasn't superhuman, fully human. Knows all of our weaknesses. Every challenge we have faced, every temptation, he faced it and did that as a man. Pride, anger, selfishness, greed, lust, revenge, doubt, fear, all of these temptations, all of these struggles he has faced. And he faced it to the extreme because he never gave in. 
Remember the illustration of a storm. Imagine there's a storm in a forest and all the trees fall down except for one tree. Well, that one standing tree knows the storm better than any of the other trees because the other trees gave in. But that tree stood and faced it all, the full force of the storm. In the same way, Jesus faces the full force of temptation. So he knows what it's like to be tempted and to struggle, but even more so than us. And he knows what it's like to go through grief. He's a man of sorrows, we're told. He knows what it's like to worry and to stress, to deeply know that because he sweat drops of blood. He knows what it's like to want to end his life. Remember on the temptation that Satan said? Why didn't you throw yourself off the temple to get it over with? He's been there. Jesus has been to the darkest of places. So he knows what it's like. And when we realize that, we realize we have someone in heaven who gets us, someone we can speak to, and someone who prays for us. I know I'm quoting Corrie Ten Boom a lot at the moment, but um, I have freshly listened to The Hiding Place, so it's fresh in my mind. And there's one point in that book where she mentions one of the humiliation, humiliating places that she was when she was in the concentration camp in Ravensbrück. She said this, Fridays was the recurrent humiliation of a medical inspection. The hospital corridor in which we waited was unheated and and a fall chill had settled into the walls. We were forbidden even to wrap ourselves in our own arms, but had to maintain uh, our erect, hands at sides positions as we filed slowly past the grinning guards. Here they were, stripped, humiliated. But it was one of these mornings, while we were waiting, shivering in the corridor, that yet another page in the Bible leapt out for me. He hung naked on the cross. The paintings carved, crucifixes showed at least a scrap of cloth but this I suddenly knew was the respect and reverence of the artist but oh at the time itself on that Friday morning there had been no reverence no more than I saw in the faces around us now Betsy her sister she said they took his clothes too ahead of me I heard a little gasp oh Corrie and I never thanked him He has been in the darkest of places, the most humiliating of places. And so even in the depth of a concentration camp there, there was hope that Jesus knows what we're going through here. He's been here. There is someone in heaven praying for you now. And not just anyone, but the second person of the Trinity. Maybe you're at the end of yourself with struggles or pain or questions. Don't know where to turn. Maybe you're struggling even to pray. Jesus is praying for you. What are you worried about this week? Don't know if you can make it. Some of the concern that just seems overwhelming or situation that seems too big. Jesus is praying for you. Let that strengthen you today. And if you're not a Christian, listen in on this. You can be part of this. Have somebody who's praying for you. The Lord Jesus Christ. Can you, you can see, can't you? We can't do life on our own. It's too big. It's too scary. We can't face these things on our own. And that is why we need our Saviour, the one who we can draw near to, the one who can help us in our weakness, because he's been there. So what is Jesus doing now? He rules for you. He prays for you and for us.
The third thing is this, he is near to us. We'll look at this a bit more next week as we look in the Holy Spirit. It sounds strange, isn't it? He ascends to heaven and yet he is near us. He ascends to heaven and yet he is close. What's going on there? Well, um, the great news is because he is now ascended, it means he could be nearer to each one of us. When Jesus rose again, he appeared to Mary Magdalene. And do you remember what happened? What did she do when she saw him? She clung to him, we're told. She grabbed him. And in John 20, it says, uh, Jesus says, don't hold on to me. I haven't yet ascended to the Father. Now, what's he saying there? Sometimes you might think, oh, don't touch me because of my body. It's not, you know, it's not quite normal, not quite right, or something like that. But no, he's invited Thomas to touch him. So he's not afraid of people touching him. No, he's saying, don't hold on to me because I'm not going to be with you in this same way for much longer. By going away, Jesus says, I'm going to do something better. So if you wanted to be near Jesus 2,000 years ago, what did you have to do? You had to go to a specific time and place. You had to go to where he was in Jerusalem, in Nazareth, to see him. He's, he was limited to that space and that time and that situation. But after his ascension, as he promises here in Acts 1, he's going to send the Spirit, his gift. And by his Spirit, he is present with his people anywhere in the world, at any time. So Jesus could have said something like, look, if I stay with you like this, I can't always be with you. You might be in prison. I won't be able to be there with you. But when I ascend, you will know the deepest, uh, you could be in the deepest, darkest dungeon, and I'll be present with you. Because of the ascension, Jesus is with us now. He is near to us by his spirit. It means he's never far away. He is always present. We don't have to wait our turn in a queue to talk to him or wait. There's no on hold with Jesus. He is present and we can talk to him. This week, he is near. Right now, he is with you. Later on in the week, he will be with you by his spirit. And when you speak, he is not far away. And there's times in our life where we can know his presence in, in a much fuller way by his spirit. We'll think again about this a bit more next week, but Spurgeon says in, in the 19th century, he said, some of us know what it's like to be too happy to live. The God of love has been so overpoweringly experienced by us on some occasions that we almost have to ask God to stop the delight, for we were afraid that he would, we, would, we could endure no more. I believe one night that if God had not veiled his love and glory a bit, we would have died of joy. He just knew the presence of God, the reality of Jesus with him by his spirit. But maybe this morning you think, well, that's okay saying he's near, but he doesn't feel near to me. In fact, he feels distant. Well, if that is you this morning, that is a very common feeling. Throughout the Psalms, don't we see it? Listen to this, Psalm 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Or Psalm 90, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Longing for God to be near because he feels far away. What does the psalmists learn to do? They learn to wait on the Lord. 
to wait, but not just wait like active-less, but to think, how does God meet with his people? He uses means. And so we need to make sure we're using the means of God's grace to speak to us and to meet with us. That is gathering with God's people. It is a means of God's grace. It is a, a way that God speaks to us and talks to us and draws close to us. Reading the Bible is a way that God speaks to us and draws close to us. So even if he feels far away, keep on reading, keep on praying. Remember, read this book. It might help to give ideas um, as to how to read the Bible, the book that we've been given today. Please think these things through because God moves by means and comes in means. And it's not something that is, um, you know, it's something that all of us go through when God feels distant. But keep coming and keep coming back to the gospel and keep seeing what it means that Jesus has ascended into heaven. He rules for you. He prays for you. He is near to you. And the, the fourth thing is this, he is preparing to return. Now in Acts 1 verse 11, see what it says there. Men of Galilee, these two men stood in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In the Creed, we say, And he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. But then it goes on to say, From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. There's a day coming where Jesus will return, a day coming where he will come back and there's a day where we will stand before Jesus he will be the judge and we will answer for the life that we've lived now it's not something that is easy for us to speak about is it not something that is easy to think about the judgment day but you know I want to say very briefly a few things about judgment day one is this judgment day is good news Judgment Day is good news. Sometimes we can shy away from talking about Judgment Day, but let me say Judgment Day is good news because Judgment Day tells us that one day God is going to put everything right. One day God is going to fix this world that is broken. It means there will be justice. The fact that Jesus is coming back means that one day there is going to be total justice. Have you been hurt? or abused? Have you been mistreated by someone and they've got away with it? Nobody knows. It seems like they've gotten away with it and that's it. The judgment day tells us that God has seen it and that person hasn't got away with it. They will answer for what they've done. Judgment day shows us that the things that break our hearts and your heart also breaks God's heart and he will put things right. It means that you don't need to carry the hurt and the bitterness that you're carrying. It means that the, the bitterness that we have that can almost destroy us and crush us, he can um, take away because justice will be done on that day. Deep down, we need judgment day and it is good news. But as well as being good news, Judgment Day is terrifying news. Because we will one day stand before Jesus as our judge. And we'll have to answer for our life. And we'll be very aware of our failures. However strong we think we are, and sometimes people say, oh, when I see God, I'm going to tell him. On that day, we won't be like that. 
we will feel humbled and exposed. We haven't lived as we should have. We haven't said what we should have said. We haven't done what we should have done. We've done things we shouldn't have and not done things we should have. Judgment Day is a terrifying day. So it's good news and we need it. But it's terrifying news, but we don't want it, do we? But here is where we need our Saviour, Jesus. On Judgment Day, Jesus is our hope. Revelation describes Jesus in heaven. And do you know what we're told? We're told that he is the lamb that was slain. The lamb that was slain. Jesus in heaven still has the wounds of the cross. And the cross shows us that this one who will judge is also the one who stepped out from behind the bench in the court, as it were, and stepped in the dock with us and took the blame in our place. He took the judgment we deserve. He bears the wrath and the anger of the Father for that debt we were thinking about in the communion earlier, the debt that we have caused by taking what is God's and treating it as our own. We have stolen from him. We have hurt and offended him. Jesus takes the wrath and the punishment we deserve in our place. Listen to how the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a question-answer thing written many years ago now, uh, sums this up in question 52. How does Christ return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? In all my distress and persecution, I turn my eyes to the heavens and confidently await as the judge, the very one who has already stood trial in my place before God, and so has removed the whole curse from me. I'll read that again. In all my distress and persecution, I turn my eyes to the heavens and confidently await as the judge, the very one who has already stood trial in my place before God, and has so removed the whole curse from me. Where's our hope in the day of judgment? The judge has taken the judgment that we deserve in our place if we trust him. That's our hope. He came down to bear the punishment that we deserve so that our judgment day has already been. Our judgment day has already gone on the cross because Jesus paid it in our place. We can know the result there. You see, when Jesus returns, he's going to fix this world. He's going to deal with all the wrong and he's going to wonderfully restore this world and all who trust in him will be part of a world made new that's why he's returning to fix everything so we need judgment day we long for it deep down because it's going to put things right but we fear it because we know we're not right and so the cross comes and helps us and jesus stands in our place and in our place condemned he stood and he sealed our pardon with his blood and we can say together hallelujah what a saviour. See, what does, he, what does the um, ascension mean? It means he rules for us. It means he prays for us. It means he is near to us. It means he is coming back. And just as we close, we can't forget, can we, that he also commissions us. All authority has been given to me, Jesus says. So go and make disciples. Because I have the authority, because I'm on the throne, go now in my name and tell others of the glorious news baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The disciples here were looking up to heaven and the angels told them, what are you doing? Don't look up to heaven. Get going. You've got work to do. You've got news to share. You've got to tell people of the glorious Savior, Jesus. And that's what we're called to do. We're commissioned to do by the ascended Lord. 
he says, go now. Tell her this, share this news. He rules for us, he prays for us, he's near to us, and he's preparing to return, so go. Now, this morning, as we think on that um, next line in the Apostles' Creed, he ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and from there shall come to judge the living and the dead. What difference is that going to make in your life? He's coming back. Are you ready to meet him? He's paid the price for you. Trust in him. Call out to him if you're not sure. And if you are, rejoice that Jesus has paid your price on the cross. Let's pray before we sing our last hymn together. We thank you, our Father in heaven, that your right hand now is the one who is our great high priest, the one who is interceding for us, the one who knows what it's like to go through what we're going through. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for praying for us. We thank you for ruling for us. Grant us the peace that comes from trusting that you are in control and that you are for us and with us and will one day return. Of all days, uh, a Sunday like today, Remembrance Sunday, to remember that one day you will come back to fix the brokenness that's all around us. Lord, come quickly, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.